We're going to be looking at a biota, and I think these sorts of studies are quite interesting because in the shadow behind every inspirational individual, there are often very wonderful, supportive, helpful individuals that do inspire those that are often in the spotlight and provide counsel and guidance and strength. And Abiathar is, is one of those particular individuals. Undoubtedly, David was a man after God's own heart, but there were times when he struggled in life, as we all do, and there were individuals that he encircled himself with that could provide him spiritual advice, direction and example in life. So Abiathar was a young man. We're introduced to him here. David's probably in his mid-twenties, and I guess for myself, and maybe for you as well, I just often tend to think of Biathar as an old man, perhaps because he's a priest, but he's only a similar age to David, so he's in his mid-twenties. We know that because he was still alongside David in the time of Absalom's revolt, and of course it was only until the time of Solomon that he actually sided with Adonijah. So that's 45 years later. So it would appear that Abiathar is just a young man in his early 20s. He's going to establish a lifetime friendship with David that was very rewarding and very satisfying and very helpful for both of them, really. So I've called our set of studies the King's Counselor. We've taken that from 1 Chronicles chapter 27. And there we have the detail as to the position of some of the men that David surrounded him with. Well, Ahithophel, of course, we know quite well because he was an astounding counsellor right up until, again, Absalom's revolt. And then he fell from grace. So it's defined, the king's counsellor, wise man, spiritual man, was alongside David. Hushai was a counsellor as well. We know his counsel prevailed at the time of Absalom's revolt. He was, he's defined as the king's friend. Ahithophel then was, as we know, succeeded by Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, and Abiathar. All right, so there we have our definition. Abiathar was not only a priest, a high priest, he was also a counsellor and a friend of David. And during our studies, we've got five studies on Abiathar. We're going to track his life, and we do have to do some jumping, of course, because to compress 45 years is not an easy thing. So tonight, our particular study is a, a narrow escape, and we're going to have a look at the input of Doag into this whole environment, the chaos that he caused, and of course this meant that Abiath had to flee from this area of Nob where the tabernacle was. So in our first study, we're going to have a look at the loss of his family, his father, who was the high priest, and uh, his fleeing to the support of David. Then we're going to have a look in our second study, 1 Samuel 23. He's on the run in the wilderness with David and the support, spiritual support that he supplies. We're going to have to then jump on our third study to the rebellion of Absalom. We still see him as a wonderful and faithful man. In fact, he was the one that carried the ark out of Jerusalem up the Mount of Olives and he was going to go with David into the wilderness with the ark. So we see he's a spiritually minded man. Uh, obviously, for many of us with this rebellion happening, we'd be running for our life. But he had this, the soundness of mind to realise that there were spiritual matters that needed to be addressed. Then we're going to have a look at tension within the city and the support that he supplied through his son Jonathan, uh, who ran and gave information to David, so there was a linkage there. And then in our final study, we'll see his defaulting to Adonijah. And I think in all of that, there's a lesson. It doesn't matter how old we are, we can still make bad decisions in life. And... Sadly, our story doesn't have a fairy tale ending. They lived happily ever after. We actually see Abijah 
um, being quarantined in the city of Anathoth. So what do we know about Abiathar as far as his lineage was concerned? Well, here, of course, is Aaron, who was the first high priest of Israel. We follow down normally the line. Remember, Eliezer was the high priest after Aaron. So in natural effect, the, this line should have continued down the line of the high priest. And here is, of course, Zadok, who was the one that was appointed by Solomon, a very faithful man. But the high priestage actually went through to the line of Eli. Remember, Eli was a high priest and he was particularly poor in his performance as a high priest and his sons, here they are here, Hophni and Phinehas, were particularly abhorrent. And we're going to see an outplay of a prophecy that was given to Eli as far as, as his line was concerned in which Abiathar became the last of the high priests of the line of Eli or Ithamar. We work our way down. A high tub was mentioned. Ahimelech was his father who died in this chapter. Here we have Abiathar. There's also a mention of Jonathan, which we'll talk about in a later study. And interestingly, some have suggested, and it seems to be reasonable, that he's associated with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of Anathoth. So here are the two quotes. In 1 Kings chapter 2, which is our last study, Solomon tells Abiathar to go to Anathoth, his city, and quarantine there because of his defaulting in the rebellion with Absalom. So that's where we leave the picture of Abiathar, there in the city of the priests in Anathoth. And then in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 1, particularly, Jeremiah is identified as a priest of Anathoth. And remember, he went and bought title deeds. So there seems to be some linkage, very possibly, uh, to, this, to this line of priests. Well, our background for tonight is quite dramatic because here is a young man in his mid-twenties who just loses everything. He lost his dad, who was the high priest, his family, his city, and he runs for his life. So this is the atmosphere in which we're first introduced to Abiathar. He was the only one to escape from this massacre, but as we've said, his friendship with, with David lasted a lifetime, something like 40, 45 years. And I think there's already just a bit of a lesson in that for us. We never know what's going to happen in life, what circumstances we're going to have to deal with. But we need to build around ourselves some valuable friendships so we know who to run to when we're in need. And we all have someone that we need to run to at times. And in this particular case, Abiathar heads to reinforce and to link into a spiritual friendship that was going to last for the rest of his life. So what's the background of this? And we, we'll spend a bit of time talking about the background because we want to lead into the trauma that Abiathar went through and with which we're introduced to him. So there's a storm. David is... Uh, in a very difficult situation. He's been down in Gath. He writes a number of Psalms, Psalm 56. He writes one about Doeg in Psalm 52. But this one here in Psalm 57 is titled in our Bible to the chief musician, uh, an instructive Psalm when he fled from Saul and he's in the cave. So this is the whole setting of verse one, the cave of Adullam. And you can look at the terminology there. David is actually quite distressed. He says he wants to trust in God. He's crying unto him. But then the latter part of that psalm there says, My soul is, upon, is uh, amongst lions. I lie among them that are set on fire, the sons of men whose teeth are, and spears are like arrows and their tongue is sharp. So this is the 400 men uh, who really had nowhere to go in life that just assembled at this cave and David had to provide them leadership when he's confused and he doesn't know where life is taking him. 
So he's been thrust out of Gath, which is the Philistine territory. He now makes his way to Adullam. It's around about a 16k journey, so it's not very far, and it's, it's sort of not far from Bethlehem, really. And some um, people that are involved in the geography said this is where David actually slew Goliath here in the Valley of Elah. That's the, the area of Adullam, which is really interesting because we'd imagine David thinking about his life and where he's been, and he's probably saying, you know what, I haven't really travelled much further than when I killed Goliath. I mean, that was a great crescendo moment for David when he walked out the Valley of Elah and he slew the Goliath and it was an upward ascent from there and I could well imagine he thought, well, here comes the kingship for me. And now he finds himself doing a complete circle and he's almost back where he had that great victory from Goliath. Now he's hiding in a cave. So I think, again, for all of us, we don't have to be concerned when things go wrong in our life because it happened to these great men and out of these difficult circumstances, they rebuilt themselves into men of strength and fortitude. And I'm saying this background because uh, this is the background for Abiathar of well. He had his whole world shaken. He was uh, qualified for special service as the son of the high priest there in the, in the, in the village of Nob where the tabernacle was. And in his next moment, he finds himself at the front of a cave and then he's on the run through the wilderness with David. So David had this upset, and so did Abiathar. And as we say, they were of similar ages. <clears throat> so here's another psalm of David at this particular time. Again, the superscription says the psalm when he was in the cave. And you can sense the loneliness of David. It says, I cried unto you with my voice. I poured out my complaint. I showed him my trouble. My spirit was overwhelmed. David's a borderline case. He doesn't know where he's going in life. He's done a complete circle and come back to where he, he slew Goliath at one stage. And then he says, <clears throat> I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no one. No man cared for my soul. And he prayed to God, attend to my cry. And you know what happened? Abiathar arrived. I mean, here's David. He's wondering about life. He's confused. There's 400 men starting to drift down. He thinks, well, how am I going to... I can barely sustain myself through these overwhelming circumstances. There's 400 men here. And Abiathar, now the high priest, and we're going to see in the next chapter, he actually took the time to bring the ephod. He now arrives at the door of the cave to be with David. And... You know, that's an answer to prayer. And I think sometimes it's wonderful how we can see in the circumstance of life, God does answer prayers in a very wonderful way. So although Abiathar and David found fellowship together in the confusion of life, they were able to provide and support each other with spiritual direction. This little statement says, it's not the storms you weather that define you, it's the way you weather the storms. And I think there was a very solid friendship that was born out of a very, very difficult circumstance. Well, we notice in the beginning of the chapter 22 that his family from Bethlehem came down to meet David. Uh, they, wasn't, they, they weren't there just to visit David and say, how's things going? They were in a very difficult circumstance themselves. They were in grave danger, so they came down for protection because with the way Saul was behaving... Anyone, anyone that sided with, with David was going to be exterminated. We see that in this chapter. He even took away the priests of God. 
So the family of David was in danger and they came down here for protection. And there's a big change, isn't there, in the brothers. Remember Eliab, Abinadab and Shammah were in the army and they berated David when he was a 17, 18-year-old. Said, what are you doing here? You need to go back to your sheep. Now, things have reversed in life and they're coming down to support David and to seek protection as well. And as we said, another 400 came. Um, they didn't come because they wanted to start a rebellion in the nation. Uh, they conformed to David's spirit and his attitude. And his attitude was, I'm going to wait for God to give me direction. I'm guessing David could have began his own rebellion. His 400 men were discontent. That was the beginning. And he could have easily swayed the nation. But these men sided with the spiritual attitude of David. They said, look, we don't know what Saul's doing, but we're here to support you. And not only that, we notice in verse 2, they had their own problems in life. So you notice in this particular verse, and I've got this circled or coloured in, the word every one, because it's emphasising three times in this verse, I'm going to say some of them, every one that was in distress, every one is debt, and every one that was discontented. And there's a reason why, because first of all, these people that were in distress, their lives were in a mess. They didn't know where they were going. And this Hebrew word matzoch means to be in anguish, to be hard-pressed, it's the same word as you, is, that you straightened in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in that context, Moses prophesied the future. He's reaching out into AD 70 and he said, you, you'll be in so much distress, there'll be so much anxiety, you'll start to eat your own children because there was a siege and starvation. That's exactly the same word. So these men were distraught. Not only that, but there was a group of people that were in debt. They weren't satisfied with where they were in life. And the Hebrew is Mara, which we know bitter, nephesh, soul, bitter of soul, used of Hannah in 2 Samuel 1 verse 10. We know the distress that Hannah was in. She wasn't satisfied with life. She wanted to be a mother. She turned herself inside out, trying to find some solution. That's where these men and these families were. And of course, it's used in Exodus 15 verse 23 at Mara, where the water was bitter. So these people had no satisfaction in life and in fact without having a spiritual leader, Saul, who was no spiritual leader, the nation was a mess. And then finally there were those that were discontent. They hadn't had any success in life. They were burdened by past failures. Everything's gone wrong previously. And we can't see any way forward. We can't recover. David, we're here to support and help where we can. Well, they're here and it says at a cave in Adullam. Well, one writer put it this way, and I thought his words were, were quite graphic. He says, the cave of Adullam was no grand Hyatt. It was a refuge camp for the wicked, a dark vault on the side of a cliff that reached deeply into a hill. Huddled in this clammy cavern were 400 losers, a mob of miserable humanity. They all had one thing in common, a bad record. You know, sometimes when we look at the Ecclesia on a Sunday morning, we come here and we present ourselves, it might look fine on the outside, but we're not much different from these men, are we, brothers and sisters? Sometimes our lives just gets in a mess and we just don't know how to unravel it. We don't have to be worried about that because right through the page of God's word, this is how God operates and this is how people are rebuilt and strengthened. So it would be a very interesting circumstance there as David's there, Abiathar comes and these 400 men. And God was shaping 
David into kingship through these circumstances. And you know what? These men that we, we say they were a miserable mob, they became eventually the 400 to the 600 men who were faithful with David for a lifetime and they trudged with him through the wilderness when Absalom tried to take over the city of Jerusalem. They became spiritual warriors. The record says as they left Jerusalem and Absalom was mounting his revolt, they were on the right and the left-hand side of David. They were magnificent spiritual warriors. And I think that gives us all encouragement. And I think they came to David for some leadership as well. And you can imagine him in the cave. We've just got this little note. While David could only see the cave, those who came to him could see the crown. You see, they're coming to David for some sort of resolution to the problem of their life. And they believed that he was God's anointed and that one day, somewhere, somehow, God would lift him to kingship. So they came to support David in his pursuit of the kingdom. That's what we do, brothers and sisters. You know, we come to support one another through our distresses and our troubles because we see the crown on each one of one another. We're here to help each other and support each other to the kingdom. And we're very thankful that we have the encouragers in our life. And for David, the presence of Abiathar was a miracle. He was there as God's representative and David needed that spiritual help and support uh, in his life. So we're told that he had to go to, well, not that he had to go, he decided in verse 3 to go to Mizpah of Moab. We tend to think, well, you know, it was just a journey down the road. Well, Adullam is up here, so it's quite a long journey down behind the Dead Sea and back, back up here into the area of Moab. So here he is, he's been up in Gath. He's now come to the cave or the area of Adullam here. You can see it's not far from his hometown, Philistine territory here. And here in our narrative, he's now taking his parents down to the area of Mizpah of Moab. So it, it's quite a, a lengthy journey. And he's going back to his roots. So his great-great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabitess. And he's taking his elderly parents with him, perhaps because there was some kinship uh, in Moab. So it's interesting to look at David's life. He's, he's gone to the west, hasn't he, into the Philistine territory to try and seek protection. Now where's he going? Now he's flinging himself across to the east right across into Moab to try and find some protection. So you can see geographically in his life, he doesn't know where to go. And you'll notice at the end of verse 3, and I've got this coloured in because I think it's a great little comment, end of verse 3, he says, till I know what God will do for me. Okay, so that's where David is. He's very uncertain in life. He's been across to the west. He's huddled in a cave in the Dullam. He's now flung himself across to the east with his parents. He doesn't know where he's going but he's still waiting for God to give him direction in life. Well, the direction comes from Gad in verse 5, who tells him to go back into the land of Judah. So this is very confusing, isn't it? David's seeking some protection, and the prophet comes and says, no, go back into Judah. We don't want you, God doesn't want you to seek refuge in a foreign land under foreign protection, as though this is some barrier, you need to go back to the land of your people, back to the land of Judah. This would be very confusing and confronting for David. I mean, he acquiesced, acquiesced we know that, because he uh, returned back up into that area there. But 
I guess there are times in our lives where we don't know the direction to take and we, we make a decision, we go one way and then that doesn't appear to be right, so we swing the other way and that's not quite right. So God gives us that direction or he gave David that direction, certainly. So there may be situations in life that we don't want to face. There may be a place that we don't want to be in or a task that we don't want to perform. So we get very uneasy and edgy about that. And what the message to David is through Gad is he's got to confront it, face it and deal with it. No point fleeing off into a foreign land. He's got to deal with the issue. And the issue, of course, will be outlined in the narrative of this chapter. Well, we're introduced to Saul in verse 6. And it says he's sitting under a tree and he has a spear in his hand. I think that's about all Saul ever did. You know, there's almost a picture of him always being aggressive. He's got a spear in his hand, uh, but th in this particular case, he's not going to use it himself. Like every other battle he fights, he gets all the other people to do the dirty work for him, and he sits down under a tree with a spear in his hand. And so Saul is consumed with David and what's going on. The nation's just falling apart. It's falling into shreds. There's 400 people, families, that are unhappy that have come down to this cave to seek some sort of resolution. And here's Saul, he's consumed with the worry of the day. Got to note here, worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. And there he is. David had been anointed a king and it's just eating him out. And he's there with a spear in his hand, sort of impotent, and he's going to get all his other fellows around him to do the dirty deed. Well, even worse than that, we notice in verse 7 that not only does Saul accuse uh, Jonathan and David conspiring against him, he now involves all of his own servants. And it's worth colouring in this word me here in verse 8 because that's all that Saul is concerned about. It's all about himself. It's all about his super ego and his pride and who he is and he's king. So these all of you have conspired, and he's talking to his own servants, can you believe it? You've conspired against me, and there's none that showeth me, oh, I missed out of my, that my son has made a league with the son of Jesse, and there's none of you that's sorry for me or shows unto me that my son has stirred up my servant against me, like he's just so, so focused on himself. And he's suspicious of everyone around him, including his own servant. So he makes up this complete fabrication and he really criticises the loyalty of his own servants and we'll notice in verse 9 it just simply introduces us to another individual then answered Doeg and adds the Edomite now this is a significant point because three times in fact Doeg's only mentioned four times in the Bible three in this particular chapter worth colouring in because there's a particular point Verse 9, verse 18, and verse 22. Every time Doe is mentioned, he's, he's, he's identified as a foreigner who hates Israel. The Edomites hated Israel. And what's interesting, you can note against one of those verses, compared to the 21, verse 7. Because when you go back a page, you'll see there it says, A certain man of the servants of Saul was there. His name was Doe. He was an Edomite. And then it adds, he was the chief herdsman. Well, you know what? He's just gone up the scale. He's not looking after the sheep anymore or the cattle. He's the chief officer on Saul's right hand. He's the chief of staff now. He's in charge of these, these soldiers and these warriors. 
So he's alongside Saul and he's going to put into place a plan that will be quite devastating to the priesthood. So you notice, of course, as we work through the narrative and we're building up to this uh, situation with Abiathar, uh, but his father is introduced in verse 11. The king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, gives his genealogy, the son of Ahitab, and some of the priests as well. And the king addresses him. Notice how the king addressed him in verse 12. Not with his first name. Saul said, Here now, thou son of Ahitab. Now why would he say that? Because Saul had a proclivity for calling people who he didn't like by the name of their family line. That's an ominous sign. When you look at verse 7, you'll notice the same thing. It talks about halfway through, will the son of Jesse, see that? He doesn't say David, because he grouped and connected people who he didn't like. So if he didn't like David, that was the whole family now of David he didn't like. If he didn't like Ahimelech the priest, then that was the whole genealogy and family line that he didn't like either. So you can see the paranoia that Saul had. He's now going to hold accountable the whole of the family of the priests. And he accuses him of giving support and favouritism to David because David came and he said he came and you inquired of God and you gave him some information. I mean, this is almost ridiculous, isn't it? Well, Ahimelech the priest is innocent in verse 14 and 15. He didn't know, obviously, what was transpiring in the court of Saul. So he answers very confidently, transparently, innocently, and with a good conscience. And he makes three points in verse 14 and 15. He says, number one, David was a trustworthy servant of the king. That's what he said. Who is so faithful among all those servants as David? This is what I know. I hear through the nation that David is a trustworthy and faithful servant of the kings. Point number one. Point number two, well, David is a member of the king's household. He's the king's son-in-law. Remember, he married Saul's daughter, Michael. So second point is he's connected very closely, intimately to the, to the king himself. And third point he makes is that David's reputation was second to none. He carried out his duties. This is David in a most respectable manner. So the bottom line was that the high priest was, in some sense, defending the nation and perhaps trying to rebalance Saul and claiming his own innocence. He's saying, I'm not involved in any particular rebellion or defection. I have a clear conscience and this is who David is. Well, of course, this would have just angered Saul a little more because Saul had no respect for anybody in Israel apart from himself. And you see the next statement here, which is quite horrific in verse 16. And again, this is the background to this opening situation with Abiathar. Verse 16 says, You will die and all your father's house. You know what Saul's just done? He has just decided he's going to eliminate the whole of the Levitical priesthood. That's, that's an amazing statement. He's just determined in his own mind that if his family and these priests are opposed to him, he's going to wipe out the Levitical priesthood and all the worship uh, services that are conducted. It, it, it means nothing to him. God means nothing to him anymore. You can see the, the paranoia that this man has, this 
self-delusional, psychotic behaviour. He's going to eliminate the priesthood not because they violated the law, they hadn't done anything wrong at all, nor because they were derelict in their duties to Israel, or because they'd offended God and there'd been some serious breach in the law of Moses. No, no, no. He just had an uncontrollable hatred for anyone who was giving support to David and he'd wiped them off the map. So he turns in verse 17, you'll notice to his footman, uh, I, I can't quite read what the margin says, but I think it says something like runners. So these were the bodyguards or the crack troops, uh, the crack strike team that Saul would have around him. They'd be the people that he protected, he'd send them into battle. They were the ones who were strategically chained, trained and he said to them, go and take the priest, the high priest and the priests out. And you can imagine the shock that these men would go through. I mean, now they're, they're being, their conscience is being tested. And they refuse to go. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Saul himself, when he was commissioned to remove the Amalekites, refused to do so. But he's happy to order the entire elimination of the Levitical priesthood in cold blood. I mean, where was this man? What possible use could a man who is now God's enemy, he's God's enemy, have for a group of people whose job it was to distill and disseminate the law of God within the nation? He had no use for the priests, so he's going to take them out. And if King Saul is going to defeat God, I mean, that's who he's up against now, that's who he's challenging. He's going to begin by eradicating God's servants. That's the level to which Saul had stooped. Well, these men, these crack troops, step back and say, we're not doing it. Doag immediately steps in and says, I'm the man, I'll do it. And, of course, we we know the repercussions of that. Uh, Verse 18, the command is given to him. And, of course, Doag involves himself in this decimation. In fact, I think that's why Doeg was hired in the high position he was as chief of staff because Saul could use some leverage with this man. He had no spiritual boundaries at all. So that was very, uh, a very good resource for Saul to use. And so Saul is going to send a message to anyone who's going to oppose the king that they would be completely steamrolled out the way. And, of course, we, we know the result of that was just absolutely horrible. In fact, Doeg as we know, went beyond Saul's orders. The order was to kill the priest, the family of the priests, and he just continued down the line. We've got a note here, well, actually in that verse there, verse 18 and 19, it says, uh, And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priests, and slew that day 85, and Nob, the city of the priests, he smote men and women, children and babies, and oxen, and asses, and sheep. I mean, this is just absolutely horrific. And I've got a note there, compare 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. The same terminology is there. That was a commission that Samuel gave Saul originally in relation to the Amalekites, who completely disregarded and opposed all of God's laws. That was the commission given to Saul. He didn't do it. Now he turns it over to Doag, and, they, and Doag and his companions execute everything living in the village of Nob. So we've got here a note, Doeg went beyond Saul's orders, wiped out the entire population as well as the farm animals. 
Israelites were only using this form of war against the worst opponents of God's holy laws. And there's references there in Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 7 to the Canaanites and all their practices and the recommendation by God to, to remove them. But executing Israel's priests was a horrific crime against who? David? No, against God himself. Here's a man with a super ego who's going to take on God. Ridiculous. Well, Abiathar, and this is the background to our introduction to Abiathar. Abiathar, as we know, was Abimelech's son. And he's next in line to be the high priest. Somehow he escaped. I mean, right, Doeg would have been quite ruthless going through those bodies and making sure they were all executed. One man escaped. I mean, can you imagine the, the feeling that Abiathar would have had as he ran for his life. One man escaped the murderous intent of Doeg and Saul. In some ways, this was a fulfilment of a message given by a prophet to Eli. And we reference this in the, the genealogical records of the priests. The record there is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Because of Eli's misbehaviour, his line was to be cut off. And men in his family were to die in their youth. They weren't to live to an old age. And so here's one of the, the outcomes of that particular prophecy and that particular behaviour. The line of Eli was almost on the point of extermination. And of course, Solomon finally made that move when he restated Zadok of the line of Eliezer to the high priestage as was um, supposed and as was important. Um, the reference, so for a while it's a little bit confusing. You think, oh, there must have been a couple of high priests. And there was. <laughs> there were two lines. First Chronicles 16 verse 39 says, when, king da uh, when David was king, they both retained their dignity. Ahimelech officiating at Jerusalem and Zadok at Gibeon. So remember the part of the tabernacle services were then at Gibeon. So Zadok was up there and David brought the ark to Jerusalem and that was where Abiathar was and remedied by Solomon when he deposed um, Abiathar because, because of his faithlessness and elevated Zadok. So the village of Nob, all pretty quiet, no noise, maybe the wind whistling through the trees and perhaps the sound of vultures circling overhead, strewn out on the ground were bodies that had been decapitated and destroyed. There's 85 priests that are dead Wives, children, whole village wiped out. It's a horrific scene and it's upon that environment that Abiathar flees for his life to a cave where David was. So we've got here in one violent moment, we have to think about this, this is our introduction to Abiathar. He's lost his father, he's lost his mother, he's lost his family, his possessions, he's lost his ecclesia. And at the same time, he's thrust in the position of a high priest and spiritual guide to David. So it's almost like dual-edged, isn't it? I wonder what he was thinking about when he was running for his life and he left the village of Nob behind and you know, there's, there's his family there and he's running for his life thinking, where, where am I going to go? And he heads for David. And when he got to the cave of Adullam, I wonder how he communicated to David. I mean, I can fully imagine he would be terribly emotionally upset. He's suffering all the trauma 
that, that we barely can comprehend. We've certainly never been to anything like that. We often have this concept of the priests of God officiating in white and everything serene and beautiful and quiet, floating around in their religious devotion. Well, it was nothing like that for Abiathar. And maybe we have that same illusion about our brothers and sisters. We look at them and they seem to have perfect lives and families or everything's in place. We'd be wrong. And certainly for Abiathar, he was having to deal with some tremendous challenges. And he was now the high priest. I mean, we've just gone through COVID lockdown and we, you know, I hear a lot about mental illness and mental pressure and that's probably true enough. But certainly nothing like what Abiathar has gone through at the hand of a madman. So verse 21, uh, this is where we're sort of really introduced to him. It says, Abiathar showed David, I mean, I can't imagine him going through this conversation without truly being emotionally upset that Saul had slain his mum and his dad and his family and his, his ecclesia. What state would he have been with him? And of course, we come across in, in our spiritual lives with brothers and sisters that have gone through tremendous challenges in their own lives and we see them as inspiring examples of consistent faith. You might have talked to brothers and sisters that have had some very, very difficult circumstances and they're still faithful and pursuing the kingdom. And they'll say they didn't know the answers or what were going to be the consequences but of course they stick with God and they wait for the ultimate answer which we know will be given at the hand of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. How do, how do we deal with these changes that are sometimes perplexing and complex to us? And here's the, the key to this whole story tonight. What we do, brothers and sisters, is we seek out godly people who can provide spiritual support and protection. That's where Abiathar ran to. And it was a dual thing in that relationship with David. They both helped and supported each other. But the reason we come along to a Wednesday night class and the reason we fellowship together and the reason we set up a network in which we know brothers and sisters we communicate is so when those tough times come we can run to them and we can find encouragement and support and so he comes Abiathar comes and, and he and he stammers out this message to to David in verse 21 and look at David's response you can see this amazing harmony of minds almost David says I knew it when Doeg the Edomite was there and he says, I've occasioned the death of all the persons of, of thy father. I mean, how hard would that be to say to Abiathar? I mean, I can imagine his face is grubby, he's got dust, his clothes are dishevelled. He, he rocks up at the door of the cave and he says, my whole family's been wiped out. And David said, I'm sorry. You know what? That's actually my fault. I mean, that, this is where this relationship is birthed. And it's going to become a strong and vital relationship for these two men. David's honest enough in the face of Abiathar to acknowledge that what he did a few days before when he sort of tricked the priest, the high priest, into giving him food without being honest, these were the repercussions. David's honest enough to do that. David, you know, learnt the lesson, the hard skeletons are going to come out the closet sometime or another. Galatians 6 and verse 7 says, Don't be deceived, God can't be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And David, in a very difficult circumstance, acknowledges that he made a mistake. We all make mistakes, but David also recovered from those mistakes. And you know what is a, a very beautiful thing? 
is that he says in verse 23, abide with me and don't fear. I think that's an amazing extension of fellowship on the background of death and confusion for both men. David says, I'm going to protect you with my life. You're safe here. And I can imagine Abiathar feeling reasonably comfortable. And of course, in this dual relationship, we're going to see in the next chapter that Abiathar has actually taken the time to bring the ephod. So it shows that he's a man of great spiritual calibre. But these, this, this little statement here, fear not and abide with me, is a statement that many brothers and sisters have offered down through time. Here's one in Genesis 15, verse 8. You know, the Northern Confederacy just came through the nation of Israel, or it wasn't actually the nation of Israel at that time, through Canaan. And of course, Abram was upset. And the comment is given by God, fear not, I'm your shield and great reward. Genesis 50 and verse 19, the brothers who came down, they were confused about life. They didn't know what was, what was happening. And Joseph understood it was all into perspective now as to why he'd been down in prison, why he was sent down to Egypt to save life. And he says to his brothers, who were fearful of him, fear not, I'll give you protection. Said in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6 to Moses and also to Joshua particularly as, as Moses gave that exhortation. Joshua's on the verge of the promised land. He's nervous. He's got to fill some big shoes. And Moses puts his hand on his shoulder and says, fear not. Be strong. Elijah said that to the woman of Zarephath who was in very difficult circumstances. David said it in our readings just recently to Solomon, his son. There's a vast edifice that you have to construct, Solomon. It's going to take you at least seven years and tens of thousands of people. Fear not to do it. Be courageous because God will be with you. It said to Daniel, who was wrenched out of his own environment at the age of 17 and shoved across in the biggest university in the world in Babylon, which had all the lights and dazzle, and David remained, or Daniel remained faithful to God. The message came, O oh man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be with you and be strong. And of course to Mary. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, I mean, her world was turned upside down too, wasn't it? One minute she's just uh, uh, a woman that's going to be engaged and married to Joseph, and the next minute she's the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a difficult circumstance. But the angel said to her, fear not. Well, that's the echo that is here as David embraces Abiathar and the two men become one solid relationship. Both of them, remember, in their mid-twenties. Not talking about people that are 40 or 50 or 60 years old. These guys are just in their mid-twenties and they're trying to work out the journey of life. And there is the key to what priesthood is all about, fellowship and understanding one another. So what are the takeaways that we have tonight in this introduction to Abiathar and the trauma that he had to deal with and the establishment of a lifelong friendship? How do we deal with the uncertainties of life? Do we view them as unusual or unwarranted? Do we think that, you know, why is this happening to me? We can flip open to any page of the Bible and there are examples of brothers and sisters and faithful men and women that are going through all those processes because God is strengthening us through them. Distress and discontentment. Are we looking for a solution? You know, we got comfortable on our couches, didn't we? COVID-19, turn the screen on, cup of coffee. Hmm, interesting talk. And that was life. And we thought it was tough. Distress and discontentment. 
Would our faith be able to survive a devastating trauma? We don't know what's around the corner. I can imagine the day before Saul and Doeg rolled up at Nob, the Leviathan was just going around his normal duties. And the next day everything fell apart. Are we prepared for something like that? Who would we run to for spiritual support and help? Where would you go? When things get unsettled and you don't have the answers, it's all just getting blurry and fuzzy and dark, where do you go? See, Abiathar knew where to run. How do you find David? I mean, Saul and his men couldn't find him. But somehow Abiathar knew where to go. And do we provide spiritual encouragement, protection, and do we safeguard? And this is what David says, you're going to be a safeguard with me. I'm a young guy, I'm in my 25s and so are you. But if we work together, we'll be able to protect one another from the difficulties of life. Do we do that? for other brothers and sisters by our example and our words. They're the challenges. So that's our introduction to Abiathar, uh, an amazing and a wonderful friendship that's going to be established between him and David, friends for life.